You can open your Bible to Psalm 119, verse 161. I mentioned this earlier. We, as a church, have been working through Psalm 119. We're 20 weeks in, and we have this morning and next week is our last two Sundays in Psalm 119. So we're not specifically going to be talking about one of the texts in the Bible that tells the Christmas story, although we are going to read one of those in just a minute. Uh, We're going to look at Psalm 119 and continue in our series, and we are going to talk about Jesus, and we are going to talk about the birth of Jesus and the Christmas story and the good news of the gospel this morning. Uh, As your pastor, I just want to recognize that we're coming to the end of 2023, and we're wrapping up one long series about the Bible, the importance of the Word of God to the people of God. And my encouragement to you is that If you don't have a Bible reading plan for 2024, that maybe over the next couple weeks you give some thought to that. Uh, The point is not to be legalistic and to say you can't miss a day and you've got to stick with it or you're the worst. But the point is to say if you don't have a plan to read the Bible, you likely will not read it. And we've seen in Psalm 119 how important it is for the people of God to read the Word of God. And so my encouragement to you is that you come up with some sort of reading plan for the upcoming year as we roll into 2024. I also want to just give you a quick heads up uh, about what is in store on Sunday mornings in the new year. When we get to January and then February and March, we're going to spend three months as a church family talking about the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about who the Holy Spirit is and why you need to understand the truth of the Holy Spirit and hopefully clear up some misconceptions about who the Holy Spirit is and the role that He plays in our lives. When we're done with that series, we're going to move on to the book of Romans and we're going to work through a very long series called Not Ashamed, the Gospel of Jesus Christ in the book of Romans. Uh, This will be a long series. It will be multi-year in scope and we'll pause every now and then and talk about some other things and break it up, Uh, but this will be a long trek through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. This morning and next week, we're going to finish up Psalm 119. So those of you who have been with us know That Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem. It's built on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. There's a stanza for each letter. And maybe over the last few weeks you have peeked ahead and you've looked at our stanza this morning and you've said, why does every stanza have one letter listed above it in my Bible in sort of the title of the section? And why does this one have two? It looks like in English, sin and shin, but the real way to pronounce it would be sheen and, or seen and sheen, seen and sheen. And so I want to make sense of this for you as best I can without spending too much time here. The 21st letter in the Hebrew alphabet can be pronounced two ways, as seen or as sheen. And in modern translations, a vowel point helps non-Hebrew speakers to know the difference. So I'll give you an English example of what I'm trying to say here. If I put a word up on the screen, you know if you're an English speaker reader that the top word is garage, not jarag. Sounds silly to read it that way, but it's the same letter and it can have two different sounds, a hard G or a soft G. And as an English speaker, English reader, you just intuitively have learned the difference. You've done your phonics. You've done the flashcards, all the rest, and you know that that is garage, and that makes sense to you. In Hebrew, originally, when Hebrew was written down, 
when the Bible was written, it was only consonants and no vowels. There's no vowels in the original Hebrew manuscripts. And you and I struggle with that because we're not native Hebrew speakers. But if you're a native Hebrew speaker, you can make sense of it. And you know what the word is and you can fit it into context and figure all that sort of stuff out. In about the 7th century A.D., a group of Hebrew scholars were copying down the scriptures, putting the Bible into form that we could have it in sure and certain format. And they understood that a lot of people did not natively read or speak Hebrew. And so they added vowel points and they added little dashes and dots and lines and all sorts of things that help non-Hebrew speakers like us. And one of the things they added was a dot on this 21st letter of the Hebrew alphabet. If the dot is on the top left, like the upper uh, letter, that is a scene, makes an S sound. If the dot's on the top right, like the bottom picture, that's a sheen, and it makes an SH sound. It's very kind of these scholars in the 7th century to add all of these dots and vowels and points so that people like you and me could figure it out hundreds and hundreds of years later. So, we're dealing with one letter. It can be pronounced in two ways. The big idea of this whole series has been centered on the Word of God. All total, there are 176 verses Eight verses per stanza, 22 stanzas, in Psalm 119. Almost every single verse in this massive acrostic poem makes some reference to the Bible, the Word of God. And I've told you over and over and over again, I'll remind you again this week and I'll remind you next week. For the most part, these words, law, testimonies, ways, precepts, statutes, for the most part, they're used interchangeably for variation. So what the psalmist is talking about in all of this psalm, this longest chapter in the Bible, is the Bible itself, the written Word of God. So here's the big idea for our stanza, the scene, sheen stanza. God's people should delight in God's Word. The people of God should delight in the Word of God. Now I want to acknowledge on the outset that the word delight is not found in our stanza. It is found 11 times in this chapter, Psalm 119. And it's a helpful word for describing what we see in this second to last stanza of Psalm 119. So we're going to read the text, and then we'll pray and ask God to bless the reading of his word. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause. But my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope For your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Let's pray together. Father, our desire this morning is to leave with a greater love for your word and a greater love for your son, Jesus, the word made flesh. So we ask that you would help us and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
"'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse." The night before Christmas. Many historians think that the night before Christmas is the best known poem, the most known poem ever written by an English poet. That's a a big claim to make, that more people know this poem and are familiar with this poem and could answer and fill in a word here or there uh, than any other poem written in English. A couple of interesting things about the poem the night before Christmas. One is that the original title was not the night before Christmas. The original title was A Visit from St. Nicholas. It's the original title. Another interesting fact is that no one knows who wrote the poem the night before Christmas. There's all sorts of debate about who actually wrote it, and I just want to lay out for you the three main scholarly views. First, the minority view. There's a small group of uh, odd scholars who think that The Night Before Christmas was written by none other than Clark W. Griswold. <laughs> Not a ma- uh, majority view, but a minority view. I just want to put it in front of you for your consideration. Two leading candidates for the author. One is a man named Clement Clark Moore. In fact, if you get on Amazon, I got on Amazon this week, I looked for books uh, that had this poem. Clement Clark Moore is the author that I found on every single book that you would buy. He was a university professor. He was a poet. Originally, when people asked him if he wrote this poem, he denied it. And he said, no, I didn't write it. That is not my work. And later in his life, his children, the story goes, convinced him to take credit for this poem, and they said, and he said, the reason I didn't take credit for it is that I wanted to be remembered as a serious uh, English writer, poet, author. I didn't want to be associated with some sort of silly Christmas poem, and I was a bit embarrassed by it, but it became so popular, I might as well put my name on it, and Clement Clark Moore took credit for it. That's one theory. Second theory or maybe third theory, Henry Livingston Jr. Henry Livingston Jr. is actually a distant relative of Clement Clark Moore. And many people think that Henry Livingston Jr. was the author. He wrote many other poems, and you can compare some of his other works of poetry with The Night Before Christmas, and you can see words and phrasing and lines that are almost identical. You almost look at it and say, surely the same person wrote these two things. And we know that uh, Henry Livingston wrote these other poems. One of the most interesting arguments, or two interesting arguments, is that Henry Livingston was Dutch. And uh, there are a number of terms in the poem that are rooted in the Dutch language. And people say only a native Dutch speaker would have thought to put these little uh, rhymes and puns and things in there. And there's also an issue of tobacco in the debate about authorship. It is said that Clement Clark Moore despised tobacco. He hated all forms of smoking, and it was known that Henry Livingston Jr. enjoyed a good pipe. And if you read this poem for yourself, you will find that there is a line where Santa has a pipe between his teeth, and people have looked back on that and said Clement Clark Moore would have never, never, never described Santa as having a pipe in his mouth, and that makes sense 
that Henry Livingston Jr. might have done that. Now, odds are you don't have a dog in this fight. Odds are you don't care. There is one man who cares a great deal. His name is McDonald P. Jackson. He's a retired professor at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. And he wrote a book called Who Wrote the Night Before Christmas? Analyzing the Clement Clark Moore and Henry Livingston question. This man has literally spent, think about this, the entirety of his scholarly career on this question. He is the world's leading expert on who wrote this particular poem. And it's fascinating that although most of the books you'll find on Amazon for the night before Christmas have more listed as the author, that Professor Jackson thinks Livingston is actually the original author. Now, why am I bringing all of this up? Why are we talking about this poem? Obviously, it's Christmas, but why this big discussion about who wrote it? The simple answer is that when you look at Psalm 119, there is a similar debate in terms of authorship. No one actually knows who wrote Psalm 119. There's lots of ideas, there's lots of theories, and I'm just going to present you with the most common, uh, the most widely respected or held views on this, but the simple answer is nobody really knows One theory is that 176 different men wrote it. This theory says that after the Jews had been kicked out of the promised land, they lived in exile, they uh, were brought back to the promised land by the Lord, that they stopped and they reflected on how they had broken God's law and they had fallen short of His glory. And that 176 of them each sat down, they each had one verse to write, they each wrote a verse, and then they mashed them all together into one giant poem. 176 different authors. You do with that what you will. Probably a a more common theory is that Ezra wrote it. You may remember that Ezra was a scribe who led a group of exiles back to the promised land. And you may remember that in Ezra 7.10, we read that Ezra the scribe had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And so some people look at Ezra the scribe and they say, that's a man who knew the Word of God, he'd committed his life to the Word of God, he had committed to living it and to teaching it, and it makes sense that Ezra was the one who wrote Psalm 119. Now, I would tend to agree with the majority of Bible scholars, Old Testament scholars, who say that David is the author of Psalm 119. I don't have any proof for that, although I'm going to give you some uh, possible uh, proofs and ideas that lean in the direction of David this morning. Uh, What I want to do, very simply, is look at this stanza in Psalm 119, and I want us to think about it first in terms of its original author. And I'm going to suggest to you that it's David. And then I want to look at Psalm 119, this scene, sheen, stanza, and I want to think with you about how it points us to Jesus. And then we're going to end and we're going to think about what in the world any of this, Psalm 119, this 21st stanza, what does any of it have to do with us and our own lives? If your Bible's open and you look at this stanza, verse 161 to verse 168, this is one of the simplest stanzas in Psalm 119 to break down. The first verse goes by itself. Verse 161, princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. The first verse of the stanza, he talks about persecution. All the rest of the stanza is one big section, and he just talks about how he delights 
in God's law. Now again, that word's not in this stanza, but it's a, a word from Psalm 119 that helps us formulate a, uh, an idea of what this stanza is all about. He's facing persecution, and yet the overwhelming balance of the stanza insists that he delights in the law of God. So let's take the stanza, and let's think first in terms of its original author. I submit to you that it was David. David fits the bill. Number one, I just wanted you to see why I think it was David. David was unjustly persecuted by Saul. So when you read verse 161 and he says, Princes persecute me without cause, it at least fits that David is writing about his own experience in life. David was faithful in serving in Saul's court. He was best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. On numerous occasions, he risked his life for Saul and for his kinsmen. He was faithful to Saul. And yet Saul, in the end, hunted David like an animal. You could say that princes persecuted him without cause and it would fit. Secondly, I would have you note that David compared God's word to a treasure. To a treasure. One of the Psalms we know David wrote is Psalm 19. And in Psalm 19 verse 10, David talks about God's word and he compares it to gold, much fine gold. And he he essentially says, I would rather have your word than a pile of the most valuable treasure on earth. Your word is more valuable to me than a pile of gold. And in our stanza in particular, if you look at verse 162, The psalmist says, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Now, some of you around the holidays, when you think about finding great spoil, you think about what's in the back of your refrigerator from Thanksgiving. And you say, it's time to get that out. It's Christmas. In February, we'll get the Christmas leftovers out because they've spoiled. But that's not what the psalmist is talking about here. The Hebrew word is shalal. Shalal. And it's really a word that talks about treasure. It's something that you might win in a battle or a victory. And you might come away with great plunder or great loot. To just put it in context for what's going to happen tomorrow morning, there's a lot of kids hoping they have a lot of shalal under the tree. I want a lot of good stuff under there. I want to walk away with all the loot, all the plunder, all the treasure. And the psalmist says, when I open your word, I rejoice at it. Just like a person who finds great treasure. That's the kind of thing David said in Psalm 19, verse 10. Next, I would submit to you that David wrote about the blessing of forgiveness. So in verse 165, uh, the psalmist in our stanza says, I hope for your salvation. Oh Lord, I hope for your salvation. I would draw your attention to Psalm 32, another psalm that we know was written by David. A psalm in which David reflects on the blessing of salvation. And my paraphrase, very brief of Psalm 32, is that David says, When I refused to confess my sin, I felt like my bones were rotting away. I tried to cover my sin up and I was supremely miserable. But when I uncovered my sin and I confessed my sin to you, you forgave me. And he says in Psalm 32, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. 
He writes about the blessing of salvation, and he writes about that here in Psalm 119. One last thought about David being the author. We know that David was a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. We read that once in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament, 1 Samuel 13 and Acts chapter 13. You may wonder, what does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? And my answer is Psalm 119 verse 162. It means you rejoice at God's word as if it was a great treasure. Verse 163, you hate falsehood, but you love God's law. Verse 164, it means that you praise God seven times a day, throughout the day. Why? You praise Him for His righteous rules. Verse 165, it means you have great peace because you love God's law and nothing can make you stumble. What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? Verse 166, you hope for God's salvation and you do His commandments. Verse 167, your soul keeps His testimonies and you love them exceedingly. Verse 168, you keep His precepts and His testimonies because you know that all of your ways are before Him. I think that's a description, a fitting description of what it means to be a person, a man or a woman after God's own heart. And I think David certainly fits the bill here. Now I want to read you a quote. This quote comes from a man named Sinclair Ferguson, a a great theologian, a great preacher. And I found this quote this week as I was wrestling with the connection between the book of Psalms, which we're in, and Jesus. So I just want to read you what Ferguson says. He says, the Psalms point to our Lord Jesus. They point to Christ in different ways. So not every psalm points to Christ in exactly the same way. But I think it's wonderfully helpful to ask ourselves, how would Jesus have read this psalm? What would he have made of this psalm? We know exactly what he made of some of them because he quoted them. But you can ask that question with every single psalm. Some of them you will see very clearly. This psalm is David pointing forward to Christ. This psalm is David experiencing a reflection of what Jesus Christ would experience. This psalm is telling us about what Jesus Christ will do. This psalm is giving expression to the emotions that Jesus would have. So yes, they're all about the experience of God's people. They're all about my experience. But they are also, in a very special way, pointers to Christ. I think sometimes we miss this aspect of the book of Psalms. We think about who wrote it originally, David, or some were written by Moses, or some were written by uh, Asaph, and we try to connect it to their context. And we say, well, what does it mean for me? And we jump right over Jesus. Let's not make that mistake this morning on Christmas Eve. Let's not jump right over Jesus, but let's think about how the Scriptures, including the book of Psalms, Point us forward to Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah is Jesus. And I would first have you note that Jesus' birth was foretold by Scripture. The birth of Jesus was foretold by Scripture in numerous places. I would just draw your attention to two important verses in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a child, and you will call his name Emmanuel. God with us. It's fulfilled in the virgin birth of Jesus. Then you move just a few verses over to Isaiah chapter 9. And there's a promise in Isaiah 9 that a child would be born and that he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. Who would bear all of those titles? A baby who would be born. The Bible, the Scriptures, foretell the birth of the Messiah. Secondly, I would draw your attention to the fact that Jesus obeyed the Scriptures perfectly. He obeyed them perfectly. The psalmist has had lots to say about, I want to do your word. I want to live your word. I want to keep your word. Can I just quickly draw your attention to the very last verse in Psalm 119? It helps you think about everything else the psalmist has said about keeping God's word. Psalm 119, verse 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Has he built his life around God's word? He has. Has he kept it perfectly? He has not. He's gone astray. And he's fallen short of God's glory. He's not obeyed perfectly. Contrast that with the Lord Jesus Christ, who when he was tempted in the wilderness by the devil, obeyed God. How? By saying over and over and over again, it's written. It's written. It's written. What's written? Where is it written? It's written in the Scriptures. Continually, he goes back to the Word of God as a means of being obedient and resisting temptation. What do we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15? That our great high priest Jesus has been tempted in every way like we are, yet he is without sin. He obeyed it perfectly, and he obeyed it fully. Next, Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection were all in accordance with the Scriptures. All in accordance with the Scriptures. Is not what Jesus said in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount? When He started off saying, listen, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. I'm not doing away with anything in the old, but I'm the fulfillment of what's in the old. Isn't this what Jesus said to his disciples after he had been crucified and raised from the dead at the end of the gospel of Luke as he walked with them and he was opening their eyes to the truth of the scriptures, the truth of the gospel, and he said to them that everything written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms had to be fulfilled. That's Jesus saying to his disciples, the law and the prophets and the Psalms they all point to me. If you read them and you miss Jesus, you've missed the point. He fulfilled them. It's not what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul said, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. All in accordance, right in line with what the Scriptures said would happen. Last, as we think about our stanza, don't miss this. Jesus was unjustly persecuted by the Herods. Yes, this psalm describes David's experience or maybe Ezra's experience, but ultimately it points us to Jesus' experience. You remember what happened in Matthew chapter 2 when the wise men came looking for Jesus and they went to Jerusalem and they went to Herod the Great? He unjustly, for no reason, without cause, Tried to kill baby Jesus. You remember what happened at the other end of Jesus' life when he had been arrested by the Jews and he had stood before Pilate and they finally brought him before Herod, not Herod the Great, but Herod Antipas, his son. And Herod Antipas said, can you show me a trick? 
Could you show me a miracle? Uh, Could you do something to amuse us or entertain us? And Jesus refused and he sent him off to be crucified, unjustly persecuted by the Herods. Now, that's the original author who I submit to you was David, and that's the truth about Jesus. Now let's think about you. Let's think about the Christian. And you'll notice on your outline, as well as on the screen, I've left it blank. I don't have a name for you to put in there. I'm hopeful that you could put your name there. We've talked about the author who was David. We've talked about the Messiah who was Jesus. And I'm hopeful that on your notes you could write your name in that blank. Now before you do that, can we just be honest? I don't want to spoil anybody's Christmas. Not all of us get to write our name on that blank. You don't get to write your name there simply because you're alive. The only people who get to write their name rightly, correctly on that blank and identify with the title Christian are people who have come to the point in their life where they recognize the overwhelming holiness of Almighty God. And the only people who get to rightly write their name on that blank are the people who have humbled themselves and agreed with God about their sin. Who have confessed with the psalmist, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. I have fallen short of your glory. I've sinned. And the only people ultimately who can write their name on that blank are the people who have put their faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, and the promise of His return. If you have never come to that point in your life where you've recognized the holiness of God and you've confessed your sin to God and you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He accomplished on our behalf, if you've never done that, we would love to visit with you when the service is over today so that tomorrow you could rightly celebrate Christmas. If you have done that, you've come to the point in your life where you've recognized the truth about God, you've confessed your sin, you've put your faith in Jesus, then what I'm asking you to do is to write your name in that last blank next to the word Christian. And I just want to think with you as we close about the role that God's Word, it's what Psalm 119 is ultimately about, it's about the Bible. What role should the Bible play in your life as you think about Christmas? Number one, God's Word reveals the truth about God, who He is. What a Christian believes about God has absolutely nothing to do with what the world would approve or applaud or celebrate. And it has everything to do, only to do with what the Bible says about God and His character. Number one, the Word of God reveals the truth about God. Number two, God's Word reveals how life works best. How it works best. Over and over and over again in Psalm 119, the psalmist says that he loves God's law. He delights in God's law. He lives for God's law. How different from so many people today who find God's law and His commands and His precepts and His testimonies burdensome and limiting and restrictive. The psalmist never says any of that. The psalmist says, look, 
Your word tells me the truth about who you are, God. And if you're God and you've spoken to us in your word and you created us, then surely you know how life works best. And I'm not going to view this as limiting or restrictive or narrow or a a big giant book of killjoy kind of rules, but I'm going to delight in it. And I'm going to love it. And I'm going to thank you for it. God's word reveals the truth about God, the truth about how life works best. Number three, God's word tells us the gospel. It tells us how we can be saved. All sorts of people in the United States will celebrate Christmas today and tomorrow. And they'll have all sorts of ideas about how a person goes to heaven. How does a person get eternal life? How does a person have their sins forgiven? Is there even such a thing as sin to be forgiven? It is the Bible that tells us the good news of the gospel. That tells us the truth about God. That's brutally honest with the truth of our sin. And that tells us what God has done in sending His Son to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those of us who had broken God's law. God's Word tells us the gospel. Last, God's Word should be our delight. God's Word should be our delight. As we end, I just want to read from Matthew chapter 1. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. 